one is uh, decluttering, so mental decluttering. And uh, a lot of what drains our energy, it's been called a, a willpower battery, as if we only have a certain amount of, of, of willpower each day when we wake up. And, and what drains that willpower battery are the, the interruptions uh, that, that uh, come at us. And they're both internal interruptions, so it's unwanted, unpleasant thoughts, emotions, feelings, and it's external interruptions, and that might be all of our sort of uh, digital distractions. Collective Insights and the work we do at Neurohacker Collective is made possible from the support of our community and the sales of our mental performance product, Qualia Mind. Learn more about Qualia Mind at neurohacker.com and use coupon code Collective Insights for an additional 15% off. Welcome to Collective Insights. I'm your host today, Dr. Heather Sanderson, and I'm so excited to have Sir John Hargrave joining us today. He is an expert in brain hacking and is going to share some tips that you're going to be able to take home, use, and teach others to use to get the most out of your brain function. So hacking is an interesting word here. Would you mind just starting with the definition of hacking? Sure. I'm a, I'm a computer nerd. And so the whole book is written from the perspective uh, of computer nerds. And, and the original meaning of hacker, it was a good word. Uh, the good hackers, the original hackers, were ones that found clever tricks or techniques to do something cool with computers. And we still use that uh, term when uh, we use phrases like, you know, um, life hacking, or time hacking, schedule hacking, things like that. It means a clever trick or technique. And so mind hacking, this book is a, a collection of those hacks, those little tricks that we can use to reprogram our brains. And in that sense, um, it's kind of a, a user manual for the mind. So brain versus mind, do you make a distinction there? Uh, we do talk a lot in the book about the uh, the neurochemistry of the brain, but it's really focused on the individual experience of the mind, because ultimately that's what we're stuck with. <laughs> we're soaking in it all day long. So what we try to do is say you're the programmer of your own brain, of your own mind, and that's the experience that you have, and we're going to teach you how to do it better. So you make a lot of, you use this analogy throughout the book of the computer and the mind and the similarities. Will you just yeah. break that down? Like how, what are all the ways the brain, the mind and computers alike? Yeah, well, the big one is that they can run efficiently or inefficiently depending on their programming. Um, I just got a new cell phone and I am totally looking forward to getting rid of the old cell phone because I am going to have this pure, fresh, clean, decluttered operating system to work on in the new phone. And we all know that experience where after some time your hard drive gets weighted down or your phone gets full of apps that you don't use. And it's that inefficiency, that sort of mental clutter that uh, is analogous to what happens in, in our own minds. Um, and so what we want to do is to uh, what programmers call debugging the software, which is where you're rooting out bugs or problems within your software, you're pinpointing where they are, and then you're rewriting the code to make those pieces more 
uh, efficient. And so in the book, we talk about becoming aware of the mind. So awareness is the first step of that. Uh, and then second, it's debugging. It's it's locating or pinpointing where these problem thoughts are arising. And then it's reprogramming through a whole series of, of uh, techniques or hacks that we have in the book uh, for for how to make those those mental patterns more efficient. Do you mind going through a couple of those techniques? Yeah, yeah, there's a lot. Um, so so one of them uh, is just called uh, what was I what was I thinking? And uh, it's very simple. Just as many times today for the rest of the day, you try to catch yourself thinking and you try to ask yourself, what was my mind just thinking? That's it. And most people find it really easy for like a few minutes. And then it's surprisingly difficult because you forget to do it. You forget to do it. In other words, you get lost in the mind. And what we're trying to do is develop this awareness of sort of this level of metacognition. We're trying to get on top of the mind to look down at it, to look at the source code or the programming that's going on. And to do that, we have to continually exercise that sort of meta function of getting out above it and asking, what was my mind just thinking? So it's deceptively difficult, um, this, this exercise. And we recommend trying it for the rest of the day after you've listened to this podcast, like try it. And then at the end of the day, see if you can remember to count how many times you were able to successfully remind yourself what to ask, what was my mind just thinking? So it sounds like a mindfulness practice. Uh, yeah. And kind of these meditation, these traditions, these you know, for millennia they've been in in um, different societies across the planet. How is your approach different or similar to some of those traditions? Yeah, it definitely comes out of those traditions, no doubt. Uh, but what's different here is that we put it within the framework of technology. We put it within the framework of computers and apps and iPhones and all of these gadgets that we're all so used to using every day. And we also make it a lot more fun because we gamify it. So all of the exercises in the book are basically ways of sort of uh, uh, games that you can play. We call them mind games in the book to help you develop the awareness and help you develop the debugging techniques and then the reprogramming techniques uh, in order to think better. And so how do those things, changing your mindset, how does that impact the physical body? What's the physiology? What's what's going on there? Um, well, actually, I'm, I'm 104 years old, Heather. So uh, I have I have done a great job, I think, maintaining my youthful appearance. Um, I think that the mind-body connection is is well documented. All you got to do is Google mind-body connection, and you'll see, you know, a lot of really great medical uh, and even like health insurance companies. Kaiser Permanente, I just saw, was like one of the top Google results on that. So uh, it's it's well understood this, uh, and I think well accepted this idea of the mind-body connection. And the more we can think in positive directions, the more likely our health is to move in positive directions as well. So tell me, how did you get to 104 without a single gray hair? Well, I do have a couple of gray hairs right over here. I'm, uh, I'm actually 52. I cut my, uh, I, I just uh, cut, cut it in half there. <laughs> um, and so can we think ourselves younger? You were kind of thinking yourself older, but I'm. Can we go in the other direction? <laughs> I went the wrong way, didn't 
Yeah, I absolutely think uh, think think that we can, and uh, I think that um, I'll tell you a, a true story. Uh, I, I I injured my finger recently. I was I was chopping wood, and I accidentally I was using a sledgehammer to sort of wedge the wood, and I accidentally hit my finger with the sledgehammer. Oh. Did not feel good. Uh, and so what I've been doing ever since then is trying to visualize the programming that makes up my finger, like the matrix, right? Like there's this wireframe that's somehow doing a 3D render <laughs> of my finger. And I'm constantly visualizing that as like completely perfect in every way, like an electron scan constantly just covered in light and goodness and wholeness. Uh, and it seems to be working, seems to be good. It's not broken when the doc, doc says looking good. So that's the kind of technique that I use. And if nothing else, helps me feel better. Yeah. It's much better than complaining about my finger. <laughs> so uh, other practical tips you have to reprogram your brain for a better life. I'd love to just go through some of the things that you um, talk the listeners through in your book. So the five whys, can you take us through those and then tell us why that works? How does it work? Yeah, Sakichi Toyota uh, was the founder of the Toyota Motor Company, and he uh, he innovated a lot of different business processes and technology processes. Um, and one of these great innovations he came up with was called the, the five whys. Um, and the idea was when something went wrong in his um, in his automobile production plants, uh, he would encourage everybody to ask why five times, because um, our habit as humans is to just look at the immediate or first order problems uh, that are causing something. So, for example, if the timing belt was off on a car or on a model of car, they would ask why. Well, the why might be because there was a part that it was uh, connected to that didn't have quite the right fit. And if you leave it at that, you might not actually get to the root of the problem, but then you ask why again. Well, why was because we had to use off the shelf parts instead of making something custom. Why did we do that? Because we had to rush production in order to meet our first quarter numbers. And why did we do that? Because our production cycles and sales cycles are not aligned. So by doing that, we get to this sort of root cause analysis that can help us really track down the true source of the problem. And the same goes with our minds. If we look not just at the first order effects or just at, you know, I feel embarrassed or I feel angry uh, at him or um, I, I feel ashamed of what I just did, but we start to ask why and then why and then why and then why again, we can get in the habit of getting down to what you might call the, the core programming of what's causing that negative thought loop. And so by doing that, we can really um, root out the, the and do the debugging at its source, and then we can reprogram that piece, which will have much higher um, first, second, third, fourth, and fifth order effects down the road. And you can see how this would be very easily applied, yes, on a manufacturing line, but also in a family system, at, at work, yes. at, at school, so in, in lots of different places where you would want to get to that root cause. Of course, any, any sort of complex system or process, um, that root cause analysis is going to get you much further than just that immediate problem. Can you walk us through the worst case, the worst thing that can happen exercise, how would you do that? Yeah, so this is another uh, way of dealing with those uncomfortable feelings. We just talked about the five whys of getting to the root of it. But another thing we can do is when we have those fears or those anxieties, often they're a kind of nameless dread. 
Uh, I hear that a lot, especially these days, right? There's a lot of things that are causing us anxiety. But if we can try to articulate what is the worst that could happen? In other words, what is the worst case scenario that's brewing in my mind, even if it's not conscious at this point? So many people, for example, right now are afraid of leaving the house. Well, what's the worst case scenario? You might be afraid that you're going to catch COVID, you're going to bring it home, you're going to infect everyone you love and everyone dies. That's it. That's your worst case scenario. So when we actually put it into words and then write it down, we make a big deal of writing things down because writing things down now brings it out of this sort of abstract cloud in our heads and puts it down just like computer code now with paper to pen to paper, um, then we have power over it, don't we? When we have it in writing, we now can look at it from above. So this is similar to that idea of looking down on our mind from above that I was just talking about. Now we can look at that fear from above. And it's extremely helpful. You may think it's terrifying <laughs> to talk about your worst case scenario. You might even feel superstitious about writing it down. But when you do, you find this odd sort of power uh, that you have over. And then you can start to say, okay, well, what would happen if that happened? Well, I'd be dead, first of all, so it wouldn't matter. But in many cases, you could make contingency plans or you could figure out ways to sort of mitigate or hedge against that thing that you're so uh, frightened of. And it's really empowering. You talk about writing down goals on paper. So instead of writing down the things that you're worried about, writing down the things that you would like to achieve or like to see happen and the powerful effects of that, uh, why does that work? Yeah, I, I read about this technique in uh, the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin. It's a great book. If you haven't read it, it's really good. And he had a little notebook that he carried around with his uh, virtues, the virtues that he wanted to sort of uh, help blossom in his life. And every day, um, like a little scorecard, he would rate himself on how he did uh, with each of these virtues. And uh, then many years later, I heard about uh, these, this technique of, of written affirmations uh, and, and whether it works or not, I decided to, to try for myself. For, so for many years, I've been experimenting with this sense, uh, with this experiment of like trying to write down uh, my goal for the year. I write it down 15 times a day uh, and then measuring at the end of the year, was I actually able to achieve the goal? Did the affirmation uh, come 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 true in some way or not? And I have about an 85% success rate, I would say, on the written affirmations. But I do this every day. Uh, I've got my little, I, I use a little moleskin notebook. I've got it right here. Uh, this is my current one. I'll show it to you. I just did it this morning. My current one is I am living my highest good. There it is. So I write 15 times a day, I'm living my highest good. And um, I think it works for a couple of reasons. One is um, I, I think that we have uh, a reminder. It's like a constant reminder because too many of us, we, we set goals and then we forget that we set them, right? And, and life moves on and we get distracted. So by doing this, um, it locks it in. Um, in a way that's very profound because you're using your muscles to do it. You're not just thinking, you're, you're putting it into this physical reality. And that's the second thing is, is you're making it real by writing it down again and again. It's coming out of your head into some like manifestation of physical reality right here. 
And then finally, um, you create these habit grooves in the brain. So, you know, there's a lot of talk in neuroscience about, you know, our brains sort of lock into the way that we've habitually thought. And what you're doing is kind of creating new grooves. We talk about like a sled going down the hill and how sleds will kind of lock into a sledded track that other people have cut. And that's what we want to do is cut these new habit grooves. And so for that reason, it's, I think it's a powerful practice. So I'm curious about the example you use that you're yours today. I am living my highest good. Yeah. Sometimes I've heard um, people recommend using something you can measure, whereas yeah. yours is it definitely would be up to you to decide if you had achieved that, right? It's not like there's no right. number associated. Can you talk about your strategy there and if you've used one versus the other? And... I've used them both. Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. I, I've used a lot of the quantifiable goals. It would be how much I'm going to earn or what I'm going to do in terms of certain projects I'm working on. And that's where I get my 85% number. I think I, I've been about 85% uh, successful on on those goals. Um, but I came to a realization recently, which is um, there is a part of myself, call it the unconscious or subconscious, that knows even more than I do what's best. And it's that part <laughs> that I really want to unlock. Um, and so if I set a, a quantifiable goal, let's say I want to make a million dollars this year and I write that down every day, that's great. But A, I don't know if that's what's best for me this year. Right. It might be five million <laughs> or it might be something entirely. Um, and B, there are all of these higher order things that that I want to do that I'm not even consciously aware of yet. So this is the one that I've landed on recently. I see all this as an experiment. This is my 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 most recent experiment, but I've been doing this for about a year. And uh, so far, it's been pretty exciting. I love that idea that you're sort of leaving some of it up to the mystery of the universe or, you know, the, your highest self that we're yeah, not. Your highest self. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And I think there's there's nothing uh, sort of woo woo about that. I think that that is like in line with psychology. And it's saying that there are parts of me that know what's best for me than than I do consciously myself. So how do you know if you're successful? Uh, well, this one would be a much more subjective, <laughs> but I can, I can tell you that, uh, just subjectively speaking, uh, things have really opened up in, in, in new and incredibly exciting ways since I've been doing this. And one of the things is, for example, uh, I'm very involved. My, my last two books that I wrote are all about this new, um, blockchain based economy that, uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and all these uh, and I've, I've really become something of an expert in that space. Well, that's something I never could have predicted when I was writing Mind Hacking. It's just a completely different direction. But um, it's been incredibly, like, personally and professionally satisfying. I think that came out of doing this in large part. So do I understand correctly, you started out as, like, a prankster, yeah, I'm, I was, I'm a humor writer originally, so a comedy writer. We had one of the first uh, comedy sites on the web called Zug.com, and, uh, and, and out of that then uh, came the first story in the book, actually, which is how I got involved with mind hacking, and the uh, short version of that story is uh, I was doing a big prank uh, at the time on uh, Barack Obama, who had just received the uh, nomination uh, as the Democratic presidential candidate. Uh, and uh, the Secret Service showed up on my doorstep. And uh, let me just say, Heather, when the Secret Service shows up, it's, it's never a good thing. 
you don't want them at your house. And I um, saw after they had uh, left the house that the uh, the drinking and drugging I had been doing were leading me into such a dangerous path. Um, and this was kind of the <laughs> the manifestation of that coming home to roost. And I realized I need to make some big changes. So I threw away all of the alcohol in the house that night. It was one of the most difficult things I've ever done. Um, and I found throwing the bottles in the trash was so hard for me that the only way I could get through it was by focusing on the muscle movement. It was the muscle memory of taking these bottles and throwing them in this dumpster behind the, the grocery store. And so that was kind of my first mind hack was I realized like if I think about the long-term repercussions of never drinking again, I will never be able to do this tonight. But if I just focus on that muscle movement, I'll be able to do just this moment. And through that and many, many other mind hacks that I developed afterward, um, I, I was able to happily stay sober. And I've been I've been sober ever since. Wow. So from prankster to an expert in, in mind hacking, yeah. and then you also have a media company. Yes. And you're a blockchain expert. Yes. Most people would not imagine that you could put all of those titles on the same person. Also, Sir, yeah. uh, do you, can you just start with actually that one? How how did you get your name? Yeah, I'll tell you the uh, the quick version. So uh, in my first book, it was a, a book of pranks called Prank the Monkey. Um, the idea was I was going to go after the largest targets I could find uh, in the world. So I went after um, all these celebrities. I went after the U.S. Senate, the United Nations, and the Queen of England. So I said to myself... Uh, wouldn't it be great to prank the queen? So I wrote the queen a letter and I said, your majesty, uh, I would like to be knighted. Um, because I just thought Sir John Hargrave had such a cool ring to it, doesn't it? It's classic, <laughs> right? Indeed. So I, I wrote her and I got a letter back from Buckingham Palace and it says, well, I'm sorry, um, but you have to do something honorable. <laughs> and I was like, well, that's a lot of work. So I took the shortcut and I went down to my local county courthouse. You can pay to have your name changed for legally for like like $75. So I went in before a judge and here I am today, Sir John Hargrave. And it probably helps. Um, I, I'm sure people look at twice at whatever you send them with that title there. Is that true? Well, here's so here's I'm going to bring it back to mind hacking now. So the funny thing about this is like perception dictates reality. And as we say again and again in the book, when you you hack, we, we talk about Steve Jobs. He created this thing called the reality distortion field. So all these like coworkers with Steve Jobs would be uh, would be like uh, he, he would go, I want this thing done. I want it. I want it done like by Saturday. And everybody would go like, but it's Friday night, Steve, you can't do it. And he'd go and he would just get you in this room and convince you that it was possible. And these were very well educated, very smart, very technical people who would say, it's like he has a reality distortion field. You fall into it and you believe that anything's possible. So this reality distortion field is something that we all have the power of, of creating. 
And going back to Sir John Hargrave, it is a weird sort of reality distortion field that has risen up around this name and that the more people say it, and it's on all my books, and the more people repeat it, it has made me want to be a better person. It has made me want to be someone who is actually worthy of the title Sir John Hargrave. So in a funny sort of way, you 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 really do create your own reality that you then live into in the future. Right. Inspired to do something honorable, I suppose. Yeah. And you get some people raising eyebrows a little surprised. I wasn't sure if you were going to have a British accent or not. Uh, yes, yes, that's common. Where is your accent? Yeah. You imposter. <laughs> <laughs> so feel, do, have, give, be. Talk us through those. Yeah, so uh, so this is the opposite now of the uh, debugging of, of the, the worst possible uh, scenario. And this is now where we're visualizing what we want. And I think one of the hardest things for most of us is to articulate what we want. We all know what we don't want. It's easy to complain about the things we don't like in our life, but actually proactively determining what it is we want is extremely difficult. So we have um, some easy prompts in the book to basically help you determine what it is uh, you want. And there are um, five words, feel, do, have, give, be. And the idea is to get one word that represents each of those things that you want in your life. So the prompts are, um, uh, what is the one word that describes how you would like to feel? It's feel. Uh, what is the one thing you've always wanted to do? It's do. What is the one thing you would like to have? That's have. What's the one thing that you would like to contribute to the world? That's give. And what is the one adjective that describes who you would like to be? That's be. So feel, do, have, give, be. And once you've gone through those, and they don't have to be perfect, you just get five words that that talk about what you want now. Um, you can put them in your little moleskin notebook. And you can use that as your sort of uh, daily written exercise to really lock those things in and create those habit grooves in the brain. Is it important, you keep referring back to your moleskin notebook, which is very gorgeous, by the way. Um, Thank you. And is there something to having it be a physical thing like that versus talking into maybe an app on your phone or yeah. typing on the computer? Is there something different about writing it down in a book? I've tried them all. So I've tried, uh, I've, I've tried writing it um, like in, in, in an app or, or uh, um, on my computer. I think that works. I think that's fine if that's what you've got. Um, I have found that there's something very satisfying about writing it down and especially in a high quality notebook. It's like I'm getting paid by moleskin. I'm really not. And by the way, no moleskins are used in the cover I found. Uh, no moles are harmed in making these. That's the brand name. But having a really nice notebook and a nice pen and doing that every day, I do think there's something very meditative and contemplative about that muscle motion, that movement of writing things out. And speaking for myself, I do it so rarely. This is like the only thing I write in my life anymore because <laughs> everything's on the computer um, that it does, I think, lock it into the brain in a different way and create new habit grooves. But it's it's more important to do it than it is to do it in a nice notebook. And as long as you're doing it, um, and that goes with all of these exercises, all these hacks, the most important thing is just to get started, just to do it. 
One of the more satisfying things is uh, for me personally is going back to those books from a few years ago and opening them up and being like, oh, wow, I did do that. It happened. Right. To see that when you wrote it down, it might have felt out of reach or like too much or whatever it was. You may have judged it in some way. And then to have that that experience of retrospect and and realize that you could do it and say, okay, now let me double down. Now is the time to yeah. go see what the next reach is, the next, the next thing I'd like to accomplish and see how powerful that can be. Yeah, we're always planting seeds that are going to be harvested in the future. And so even today, you have the opportunity to go plant a seed that is going to pay off uh, days, weeks, months, maybe years from today. And that's what you're talking about is to go back and remember when you planted those seeds. It's very powerful and it gives you motivation and energy to do it again today for something that's even bigger. And that's a lot of the book is creating these these spirals, these self-reinforcing spirals that take us to greater and greater accomplishments in the same way a code base can be used to make more and more uh, complicated and technically beautiful programs. That's what runs all of our software today. They started as these tiny little applications, and today they've evolved into Facebook or the internet. So a lot of this is, the foundation is creating habits. Do you have other tricks for for getting out of those hard ruts that we get stuck in and creating these good new positive habits? Uh, Yeah. Let me let me look here. Yeah, so one is uh, decluttering, so mental decluttering. And uh, a lot of what drains our energy, it's been called a, a willpower battery, as if we only have a certain amount of of, of willpower each day when we wake up and and what drains that willpower battery are the the interruptions uh, that that uh, come at us. And they're both internal interruptions. So it's unwanted, unpleasant thoughts, emotions, feelings, and it's external interruptions. And that might be all of our sort of uh, digital distractions. And so one of the things uh, one of the one of the exercises in the book is to uh, go do a deep clean of all of the digital distractions that are out there on your computer and on your phone. So this would be like silencing audible text alerts, or it's turning off the interruptions on all the apps that you don't really need to be interrupted for. And it's basically trying to simplify and streamline uh, that sort of everyday experience. And there's a lot of research that shows that Uh, those distractions have a real impact, a negative impact on us because they take us away from the deep concentration, the deep focus that we might be having on our work or things that are really important. And they pull us into this relatively uh, unimportant tweet that somebody just put out. So we wanna try to turn off as much of that as possible so that we can streamline and simplify. And then we can start to focus on the internal distractions or managing the thoughts and feelings. I'm curious, you talk a bit about Steve Jobs, and he was he made a very conscious decision to wear a black turtleneck and jeans every single day. Yeah. And yeah. this was around the idea of decision fatigue, I believe. Yeah. And yeah. I certainly get to the end of my day, and my husband will say, well, what do you want for dinner? And I'm like, I can't. Like, I cannot make a decision. Please yeah. don't ask me. I just need yeah. to eat. 
And so I'm curious if you have hacks for for that, like how to reduce decision fatigue throughout the day. Yeah, meditation. I, I know exactly what you what you mean. I, I have a very demanding job, and at the end of the day, I call, I call it either the willpower battery or sometimes we call it psychic fatigue. It's like I have no psychic energy to give you right now. Um, and so I have a meditation uh, practice, um, which in the book we call it Jedi mind training. Uh, but I do it twice a day. I do it in the morning and then at the evening before dinner. And I find that that little brief period of meditation, 15, 20 minutes in the evening, really helps recharge that willpower battery and it helps mentally reset everything. And I'm much more refreshed. It's like a nap, a psychic nap. And then I'm able to go and and deal much more effectively with the the end part of my day. So what's on the horizon for you? Uh, I I can't wait because it, this the story of your life has so many twists and turns that no one would have predicted. What do you see happening over the next decade or so? Yeah, it's pretty exciting. It's pretty fun. Um, yeah, I, I uh, well, first of all, I, I'm 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 really into to Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, and you may may follow the news on that, but that that has done very well. So I I think that I've I've um, and, and our team has, has made a real contribution in helping people frame this new world of money um, in in a way that uh, is within the reach of, of just ordinary investors, ordinary people, and helping them understand how to use this. Um, and sometimes I, I look at that and go, well, what we've really done is we've kind of hacked the entire global financial system with this new invention. Um, we didn't invent Bitcoin, but we have certainly helped put it into a framework that makes sense for most people. So I think that's mind hacking kind of at, at another level. The the levels that we're working at right now are uh, are pretty pretty phenomenal. You mentioned the media company that we have and the the impact that we're having with our media company, Media Shower. It's a global communication company now as well. So it's pretty exciting where it's all going. Um, I would love to come back to mind hacking at some point and kind of talk about advanced mind hacking techniques because there's been a lot of things that uh, I've learned and I've kind of added to that uh, that stock of, of of tricks and techniques since the book was first published. What role does humor play in mind hacking? Well, it's fun. It's fun to laugh, isn't it? Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, it's good. It's good. It's refreshing. Uh, I think that uh, uh, when, you know, you mentioned that the willpower fatigue, and, and I do think that's another uh, way of, of managing that is um, uh, sometimes when I'm at that that point where I feel spent, sort of mentally spent, um, I'll say, we, we I must watch something funny tonight. So we'll we'll all turn on something funny, and it does have a sort of restorative effect. So I think it's it's another hack, it's another tool, another technique that can be used to give us more energy and uh, to to do more great things. Yeah, it, it sounds to me like in your story, although it it's kind of these unpredictable twists and turns, they each kind of build on each other, right? There's writing and communicating through humor and these pranks and and kind of trying to get at the man, and then using these mind hacks to to sort of rewrite the story and then the media company which is again about communication and then applying some of these techniques to the financial system um there yeah there's a grace to it an unpredictable um storyline there which is kind of where I, it all started I, 
Yeah, thank you for saying that. I I, I see it the same way, and I see it as uh, a, a life well lived is uh, is is a very unpredictable and um, uh, strange and wonderful uh, journey. It really is, and I think that all of us, no matter how unusual or disparate our, our paths may be, um, and seemingly disjointed and disconnected, we can find a through line. We can find a storyline that connects them all and we can see that uh, ah this led to this and this led to this and this led to this and it wasn't clear to me at the time these two things seemed just worlds apart and yet i was able to sort of be the glue that kind of pulled all of that together and there's a real magic in that to be able to tell that story both to others and also to ourselves it's it, it makes life worthwhile yeah, and then bringing it back to your affirmations to really lean into that, to use yeah. the magic of that to see what's next. I, uh, I, I'm, I'm a big believer in in authenticity, and that word gets a lot of uh, maybe inauthentic use. Um, it's, it's kind of a cliche, but, but to me, authenticity means like you are trying to be yourself. You are trying to express your own personality in its fullest sense. And you have a one-of-a-kind personality, you, Heather. But also, everyone listening, you have this unique and precious gift, which is your personality. And the more you can develop it and express your own individuality, your own uniqueness, the more you'll have to offer to the world. People are afraid to do this because we all want to look like somebody else that you know, is successful but ultimately, the more we can be authentic, the more we can be ourselves, uh, I think the more successful we can be. And I, what I gather from the book is that that debugging is sort of getting out of our own way yeah. in that process. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So, uh, so, so the debugging is basically, you know, it's, it's all about uh, trying to log into, uh, in, in computer terms, it'd be called like the administrator level account. So like an admin account is an account that has special powers over all the other user accounts in the system. And, and when you have this admin level access, you, you have this sort of magic super user power. Um, and, and when we can get into that state in our own minds, um, then we can look down and start identifying through these techniques we've been talking about where that, that buggy thinking um, is, is happening. So, for example, I, I just talked about being authentic and, and, you know, we might think, well, I'm not good enough because I don't have this education or I don't have this experience or I don't have these friends or these social connections or this job or what have you. And when we get into that super user, that admin level type thinking, we can look down on that and realize that that's what's behind what we're thinking. It might not even be conscious, but then we can say, wait a minute. I don't necessarily need that job, or I could get that job by doing something, or I do have this set of skills. Um, and we can start to root out that problem thought that really is holding us back in a very real way, because it's creating our reality. And we can start to replace it with better programming, better thoughts that are going to move our life into a better direction. So most important question, does this apply whether you use a Mac or a PC? <laughs> That's a good question. I haven't been asked that one. Yes, it will work. Uh, and both Android and iPhone. Excellent. All right. So if anyone wants to learn more about you and what you have to offer, where can they go to find out more? Well, first of all, the book is free. 
so you can uh, buy a copy, of course, at Amazon, um, but you can also read it for free online at Mind Hacking, and that's mindhacky.ng, mindhacky.ng. It'll be in the show notes. Um, and that's a full copy of the book. And then there's also within there um, a link to an email list which will send you uh, the full mind hacking program. So there's 21 days of exercises and it will email you uh, each one for 21 days. And then finally, there's a link there to an online community of people who are practicing mind hacking together uh, through an online tool called CoachMe. And uh, you can basically track your progress and talk with other members of the community. I'm curious what made you publish the whole book online, right? Like there's a financial incentive for you to just sell it and have people buy it. Why did you choose to publish it this way? Yeah, it was a big risk. Um, so I, and I, I give credit to my, uh, my publishers at Simon & Schuster's Gallery Books. Um, no one had really ever done anything like this with a traditionally published book. Um, but I'm a big believer in uh, open source. So open source is the, the concept of, of, of making computer code uh, that's, that's free to the world. Uh, that anybody can go and edit and reuse and modify. Um, and it's a, it's a big movement, I think very important. I right. said, I wanna make sort of an- You put Stallman, right? In the, in the same category as Gandhi yeah, and King. That's right, yeah, <laughs> who uh, is one of the founders of the open source movement. So I said, I, I want you know this, this technique um, to basically be open source. I want everybody to have equal access to this. And, you know, in the traditional publishing industry, this makes no sense. Why would people pay for a book that you're giving away for free online? Um, but we did a couple things with the print book. One is we had a, a, a custom worksheet. So there were some, some bonus goodies with the print book. And the audio book actually has 21 days of guided meditations. So I actually take you through all of these different techniques over 21 days. Well, uh, the audible book, became uh, an audible bestseller and um, like broke all sales records. And it's really remarkable to me that when we give something away, paradoxically, it can actually mean that the message gets spread wider and more people come in and uh, and and buy the the official product. So it was it was a real uh, fascinating lesson and and I'm really glad we did it that way. Yeah, what a neat experiment. I have to tell you that my experience of reading through the um, the online version that was free in preparation for this made me want to go buy the Audible one so that I could be yeah. listening to it and, and getting these these messages on repeat, really. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, the Audible book is great and um, we, we put a lot of work into that and I think it's the, the guided meditations I'm really proud of in that and uh, so many people have written and said, yeah, I, I really really love having those and they've, they've made a big difference. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and for your time, sharing your time. This was fun. Yeah. A lot of fun. Um, and so many great, uh, hacks that we can all take home and start using today. Yeah. Thank you for having Such me. Such a pleasure. This episode of Collective Insights was hosted by Dr. Heather Sanderson and produced by Jacqueline Loera. This podcast is for informational purposes only. The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You should not use the information on the podcast for diagnosing or treating a health problem or disease, or prescribing any medication or other treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider before taking any medication or nutritional, herbal, or homeopathic supplement, and with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. 
Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this or any other podcast. Reliance on the podcast is solely at your own risk. Information provided on the podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship between you and any of the health professionals affiliated with our podcast. Information and statements regarding dietary supplements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to therein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician. This podcast is owned by Neurohacker Collective.